the Buddha realized the path to peace. And he encoded his teachings and his realization in the Four Noble Truths. And you'll recall that I spoke about the Four Noble Truths <clears throat> and acknowledged that the First Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha and elaborated on dukkha to some extent. The first noble truth is to be investigated, which is what we do here through our practice, is we look at our experience close enough, continuously enough, with the refined vision to see, indeed, what is suffering and what is the end of suffering. The second noble truth is the truth that the cause of this dukkha is craving. Craving in the form of holding on, attachment, clinging, being identified with experience. And this second noble truth, this clinging and craving, is to be abandoned, to be let go. And when one is able to do that, the third noble truth can be realized, which is that the end of dukkha through the end of craving is possible. <clears throat> and I elaborated to some degree <clears throat> how our practice here reveals step by step and in so many ways um, the experience of relief, the relief of letting go. And the fourth noble truth is the path of practices to be developed in order to realize the end of suffering. Now this eightfold path, this fourth noble truth, is, as you know, right view or skillful understanding, right thought or intention, followed by right speech, right action, right livelihood and then the meditative practices of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. What we've been doing here in making our effort to be mindful and present with all of our activities is moment by moment fulfilling all of the Eightfold Path factors right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, developing based on right view and right intention, right speech, right action, and our right livelihood as a yogi, as a, a retreat. But let's face it, we're not gonna take this practice like this, or this format of practice home. We just don't have the discretionary time and our housemates probably wouldn't support it like the staff here. <laughs> so, as one yogi recently acknowledged to me, I want to live a life of awareness. I don't want to live the lifestyle of a retreat. And I think we all would agree, this lifestyle is not really what we're looking for. 
but the quality of mind and the quality of sensitivity and openness and understanding that comes from a life of awareness is something that we would all like. So the challenge is for us how to make the transition from a very intensive retreat lifestyle to our domestic, civic, professional lifestyle with Dharma. The benefit that we see and feel and recognize from our experience here is dependent on very specific conditions. And we've been mentioning throughout the retreat how everything we experience is conditioned. Conditions arise, come together and give rise to this experience. Well, the development of our awareness on this retreat is dependent on very specific conditions, like being physically secluded here, away from your usual, familiar, habitual distractions, obligations, family, friends. And that physical seclusion alone is very tranquilizing for the mind. There has been a singularity of um, dharma. Everything about our being here is connected to, inspired by, aimed towards the dharma, the truth, the truth for us in this moment, how it's presented and taught by the Buddha, and what we can do to get closer to it ourselves. And so everything we've said in the instructions, the talks, the interviews, the check-ins, is geared towards keeping the mind engaged with the present moment in order to know the truth. And that singularity of topic and content and effort has a tremendously uh, powerful and entraining effect. It's like your mind can't go far away before some Dharma reminder will bring you back. The physical seclusion, the singularity of the Dharma, and the continuity of the effort. The schedule of this retreat and the format of the retreat, the schedule being up at 5, to bed at 10, and in between, sit and walk in silence, pay attention, please. And the, um, the silence, the stillness, the non-reading, non-writing, non there's, just, there's just no distractions other than your own mind. And the continuity of effort with the physical seclusion and the singularity of the Dharma are the conditions, some of the conditions, that make, or that have produced, that allow you to see what you've seen. Which is both dependent on and conditioned by what you hear in the talks, 
your own reflections while here, and your own practice while here. It's clear that the unwholesome mental states have diminished in frequency and intensity somewhat during your time here. And the wholesome mental states have grown in strength and frequency and endurance. I think each one of you has touched some part of your heart a little more sensitively, a little more deeply, a little more clearly where you feel uh, inspired, uh, you feel like the direction of your life is either a little clearer or a little more refined. Uh, you feel the ennobling of your life through your efforts. And it doesn't have to be dramatic, but just a little. And this is a precious thing. It's not easy to come by. It's not easy to get in touch with the gentlest, subtlest, uh, most noble corners of our heart. Because, you know, let's face it, the conditioning of our life, our lifestyle, our culture, the pace, just, well, doesn't offer a lot of space for it. And so we have to create that space and work hard to touch our heart at that level. And the conditions of the retreat help make that possible. Whether you know it or not, your faith in the Dharma your faith in yourself, the confidence with which you feel you can practice the Dharma, and the clarity of your aspiration is at its peak right now. And it has gotten to this peak, again, due to these conditions. When we leave a retreat, the conditions dissolve. The silence, the seclusion, the singularity of the Dharma, the continuity, the effort, the inspiration, the explanations, it all, well, they're temporary conditions. They are impermanent. And when you're in your car and you go home and the radio's on and you meet your family and friends, something else will be conditioning your heart and your mind. And so inevitably, and unavoidably, the experience of the retreat dissolves. The clarity of our mind weakens. We get dispersed into the multiplicity of interests and activities that we're familiar with. The tranquility of the body gets revved up. The mind gets engaged in composing, reading, writing, texting, messaging, taking in just so much. And this is, this is normal. This is our lifestyle. You know, we, we are not hermits, and we're not about to be. And so, quite naturally, we're going to uh, open our minds to a profusion and a multiplicity of energy. 
information. Tenzin Palmo, the um, British woman that was a Tibetan nun in a cave in Tibet for, or in Nepal, I guess, for 12 years, she says, our mind is a treasure, but it is very absorbent. So we must also be very discriminating in what we hear, read, and see. In, our, in the spiritual life, our fence or our guard is our ethics. Our minds are very absorbent, so we should be careful what we expose our minds to because our mind will pick it up, absorb it. It is then a condition affecting every experience that we have. Unavoidably, the clarity of our aspiration, the continuity of our effort, the inspiration we feel to practice, and the confidence we have in ourselves will diminish. But this needn't be a cause for disappointment, frustration, or uh, giving up, but rather an acknowledgement of the conditional nature of everything using this opportunity too, this experience as an opportunity to practice rather than an obstacle to practice. So leaving a retreat when viewed in this way is not a loss. It's not an obstacle. It needn't be a problem. If we understand that conditions change, Experience changes, but every experience is an opportunity to be aware. An invitation to open to this as it is, the way it is. But we'll be leaving the intensive training. We'll be leaving the conditions of silence, solitude, seclusion, singularity. And it's not clear, really, how to... live a lifestyle of dharma or a dharma lifestyle if not in the retreat format. So we imagine or we wonder or we question, how can I integrate what I've seen and learned here into my life? What does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha at work, at home, with our civic responsibilities. How can I find the benefit of a teacher that I trust, value, appreciate, when I don't live near one? These are very real questions that, that we all ask and that we get asked many times, how do I do this in my life? It's not as if we're going to choose to live a different lifestyle. 
it's not our choice. We live in this culture, we live in this time, we live in this economic system, we live in this uh, social, political, environmental set of conditions. Most of our life is already conditioned. But how we relate to it is the arena of our practice. And that is the place where we can either suffer or look for and practice the end of suffering. This is the human realm. It has a momentum far older than we. And it's not, in spite of our best wishes in political, social, environmental, and civic activism, let's be honest, we're not going to make dramatic changes in our lifetime, in the momentum of culture and civilization. And so the work is up to us. Each one of us in our own life making our own choices and decisions and changes and understanding that just as the momentum of the culture conditions us in our behaviors, thoughts, beliefs, activities, our choices condition the culture and the momentum of civilization. It's a two-way street. What we do has a tremendous impact on others. And it's not because we're Buddhist or Christians or Muslims or Jewish. It's because of the quality of our heart and the quality of our uh, connection with each other, with the earth, with the institutions of our shared life. So the question is, how do we move from dharma binging of being on retreat, going home and doing nothing, to actually living a dharma lifestyle day by day? Now, if, as the second noble truth acknowledges, craving is the cause of dukkha, the pain, the suffering, the unhappiness of our life, then it's clear that letting go has got to be the antidote. If holding on is the problem, letting go is the answer. Carlos Castaneda was taught by a great uh, Dharma teacher, Don Juan, written about in his many books. And Carlos writes, Don Juan had assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized, Carlos writes, that I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, Don Juan said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. 
that is pretty sobering. Because, and we can laugh because we see that it's true. That's the, 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 the sad part. We have to work hard to make ourselves miserable. And with a, a shift of mind, all that energy could be moving towards making ourselves strong, confident, stable, and free. The second noble truth is realized by abandoning craving. This is practiced through renunciation. And renunciation, the practices of renunciation, are the paramis. And the paramis are what we would call the householder's practice of the Noble Eightfold Path. Being householders, wanting to be free, wanting to be aware, our practice at home, at work, at play, in our communities, are the paramis. The paramis are those forces of purity in the mind, non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. That the bodhisattva perfected in order to become a Buddha. So we could say, oh, the paramis are the qualities of the awakened mind. Because it isn't until a bodhisattva makes these qualities of mind the default setting of the mind that one becomes a Buddha. For those of you who don't know, the paramis are qualities like generosity, truthfulness, ethical conduct, loving kindness, understanding, patience, resolution, equanimity, and there's a couple more. These are not unknown to us. And we see that we have the potential in our mind to be patient, to be generous, to be kind, to be loving, to be balanced, to be understanding, to be truthful. And yet we also recognize and in all honesty have to acknowledge that we don't take every opportunity to practice them. An interesting understanding of the paramis I heard about in Burma where I was practicing. In Burma, many people are Buddhist, nominally, in name only. But there's a large percentage of them that are actively practicing the paramis as the foundation for their, their, their lay life. And they have the understanding that in the lay life, we practice the paramis. It develops the mind, the foundation of the mind for, or it prepares the mind for liberating insight. And it's when we go on intensive retreat like this that we practice Vipassana in order to monitor or to measure the depth of liberation of the mind and the depth of freedom in the mind 
is directly related to the maturity of the paramis. So these qualities, the paramis, when I say that the bodhisattva developed them to a default setting, did I tell you the story about the ascetic Sumedha hundreds of thousands of lifetimes in eons ago when I gave the karma talk, made an aspiration to become a Buddha, lived hundreds of thousands of lifetimes doing what? Developing the paramis. Putting himself, finding himself in situations that challenged his ability, his willingness to be generous, to be truthful, to be kind, to be understanding, to be balanced. So that inevitably he had to learn the value of these qualities of mind as the first response in a challenging situation. Well, let's face it, when we're faced with difficulties, patience, understanding, and truthfulness may not be the first resort of the mind. You know, frustration, disappointment, anger, and you know, entitlement may rush to the surface first. Well, we have some work to do. And it's in our daily life that we have every day, you can see, we have opportunities to practice patience. Do you commute to work? There's an opportunity to practice patience. You know, do you work with others? There's a challenge to being truthful, understanding, loving kindness, or developing loving kindness. It's just, there's just, and we don't have to go out of our way to find an opportunity to practice the paramis. But we have to remember that these qualities of mind are an option. They're a possibility. Because we know the habits of the mind are very deeply conditioned and they arise without a lot of conscious intention, quite habitually, quite automatically, unprompted. We don't, you know, impatience doesn't need an invitation. <laughs> it just comes. Same with all forms of aversion and uh, all the other uh, hindrances. So what are these forces of purification, these paramis? I've mentioned generosity, morality, including truthfulness, which are two of the three pillars of the Dharma. Wisdom and energy are two of the five spiritual faculties. Loving kindness and equanimity are two of the four Brahma-viharas. Patience, resolve, and renunciation. We see these qualities in ourselves. We know that we can display, exhibit, practice these qualities. We've all experienced being generous, being truthful, being kind, being loving, being balanced, being equanimous. And we also recognize that they're not fully developed that we still resort to attachment and aversion, confusion, delusion, and this is our practice. 
If we're willing to consider taking on the paramis as our practice outside of retreat, we have to be willing to confront our conditioning, both our past conditioning from our family and our friends and our education, but our current conditioning from the media, the market, Hollywood, politicians, they are continually exerting, putting out a message which is exerting a conditioning effect on our mind. Last May, a few months ago, uh, Kamala and I did a uh, self-retreat at home for the month. And I'm not much of a media junkie at all. I read the news each day and, and for an hour, and, and that's about it. But I realized that I have a talking head in my head. I, I am filled with the same kind of rant and shrill partisan commenting that is so marketable on the airwaves. And my mind, it's got its own channel. This, well, it wasn't really a surprise. I just saw it in light of the conditioning effect and influence of contemporary society. Since when is shrill partisanship the path to happiness? Our culture, our cultural conditioning may not be the path to happiness. And so we have to be willing, if, if, we're really look, if we're really interested in finding that place of a sense of well-being and happiness and ease and uh, peacefulness in our life and minds, we will in all likelihood be rowing against the current of contemporary culture. Are you willing to do that? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we willing to be that obvious, that removed, that disengaged, that uninvolved? Can we be? As you can see, these paramis, these qualities of heart, these qualities of mind, are not particularly Buddhist. They're not even spiritual. They're certainly not esoteric. They're pretty universal. And in fact, they're kind of common and mundane. Generosity, understanding, truthfulness. I mean, these are qualities of mind that are recognized around the world in every culture, in every spiritual tradition, as the qualities of a good human being. Salt of the earth folk in every culture value those among them who display any or all of these qualities. Someone was asking today, how can I go home to my, you know, very strong Catholic, Christian, you know, fundamentalist family and tell them what I was doing here? And I said, well, 
Don't tell them you're a Buddhist. But just live as if you were a Buddha. As if you were Jesus. Leave out the rhetoric, the dogma, the, the raps that you've heard. Keep the practice in your heart and live among, live anonymously among your family, your friends. It won't be a threat. If you're a Buddha or, or, a, or a Jesus or a, a truth teller or whatever it is, you know, they'll recognize, oh, there's been, a, there's been a change in you. Well, that may be hard for them to adjust to too, but nevertheless, <laughs> it won't be the source of conflict. But we know it's not easy even to, to keep a commitment to tell the truth or to uh, live with integrity or understanding or to offer uh, appreciative and loving thoughts to those who are initially perceived as being adversarial. And so what, what is it that's going to encourage us to make the effort? to step up to the plate, to take the risk of practicing these qualities of mind in an environment where we haven't been that way previously. Thomas Berry, a Catholic priest and an eco-theologian, he says of the the, the movement to nobility. He says, the mythic vision is what evokes the energy needed to sustain the human effort that's involved. When we have a mythic vision, when we articulate our aspiration, which might feel like a mythic vision, whatever, whatever it is that you see as the goal, the direction that you're willing to make effort. It is that vision that evokes the energy needed to sustain the human effort involved. And so it's important that we understand why we're, we're making these efforts, why we're willing to uh, resort and cultivate and develop these paramis. Because just understanding or knowing that there are potential in our mind and that they're valued doesn't mean that we've made a choice to act on them. We can see them as potential. We can value them in others. But when we want to make them our own default setting, it's a choice. It's a very conscious choice that we will make over and over and over again every time we're presented with an opportunity. And not only an opportunity in reaction to conditions demanding patience or understanding or loving kindness, but an active, a proactive seeking out the opportunities to practice these paramis. we will be reminded over and over and over again by our failure. 
by the limitations of our current capacity to be patient, to be truthful, to, be, to live with integrity, to walk our talk. But this is just not a judgment, not an obstacle, not a final grade, so to speak. It's just a pointer to the area of your life that still needs work. And if we can see it that way, we can understand that this is an opportunity, not an obstacle. When I say that the paramis are householders' practices, they're all practices of mindfulness. They all require attention, careful attention, to practice them. They're also all practices of renunciation. They all require letting go of something. And I'll explain a little more further. Letting go of objects, letting go of beliefs, letting go of obsessions, letting go of views and opinions, letting go of our sense of ourself, letting go of our demands. Why? Because they're all happiness practices. They all lead and tend towards or lean towards the happiness of tranquility, the tranquility of the mind and the body, the happiness of harmony, living at ease with ourself, living at ease with others in the quality and the care with which we speak and act, and living with the happiness of peace, you know, that inner surety of contentment and ease and integrity that we begin to taste here on retreat. So these paramis, like generosity, it is the eightfold path factor of right action. We practice by letting go of our attachments and letting go of our possessions in order to practice generosity. Morality or ethical conduct is the eightfold path factors of right speech and right action. We practice it by renouncing or letting go of acting out our obsessions or acting, uh, letting go of carelessness in our human relationships. Renunciation itself is the eightfold path factor of right thought. We practice it by letting go of things, obsessions, beliefs, and ultimately our sense of ourself. Wisdom, the eightfold path factors of right view and right thought, practiced by letting go of not knowing, knowing wrongly, and naivete. Naivete. We know. Each one of us knows what's going on. We know what's going on in our hearts. But it's sometimes hard to acknowledge it to ourselves and to others. When we practice wisdom, when we make a commitment to practice wisdom in our human interactions, in our daily life, it's an unwillingness to deny what we know is true. That's a challenge. 
energy. The power of me of energy is the eightfold path factor of right effort. Practiced by letting go of laziness, inertia, and procrastination. Hmm. Did you ever notice how the to-do list just grows and grows and grows? Why? How many times do you have to look at something on the to-do list, putting it off to later, procrastinating, before you decide to do it? Or until the time is passed and you no longer need to do it? More often, or equally often. What is to be gained? I don't know about you, but I see that when I put something off, I usually fear it's going to take too much time, it's going to be too hard, it's just a hassle to do the research, or whatever it is. And I, I make a big problem out of it, and so I put it off. Inevitably, or the majority of time, to just do it is much less unpleasant than all the worry and fear and frustration of just of, of putting it off. And when I actually decide or turn my mind to doing something, it doesn't take nearly as long and it isn't nearly as difficult as I had imagined. How many times do I have to see that before I'll stop or minimize, cut down on my procrastinating? That's why it's a mindfulness practice. If you pay attention, this is what you see. You really understand your own life. And that's why all of these paramis are, are, are mindfulness practices. Patience, of course, is the eightfold path factors of right speech, right action. We practice it by giving up or letting go of impatience, demanding, rushing. Truthfulness is the eightfold path factor of right speech, giving up denial, deception, insincerity. Resolve is, of course, the right speech, right action, and right concentration. Practice by renouncing dissipation. Now, re resolve, or aditana, determination, resoluteness, not commonly or easily recognized as one of the main ten qualities of the awakened mind. It's kind of uh, vague. It's kind of not talked about much in our culture. So what does it mean to give a, to, to practice resolve and uh, resoluteness? It means to give up dissipation, to give up wavering, irresoluteness. If you really want to know what it means, it means give up multitasking. <laughs> multitasking is dividing your energy into multiple outlets. Resolve and resoluteness is keeping on track a little more than that. Loving-kindness, of course, is the is the right thought, practiced by renouncing aversion, fear, impatience, hatred, aloofness. Because loving-kindness is connection with others. And when we remain aloof or when we remain isolated or when we, we keep people at a distance, it may not be loving-kindness. Equanimity is right thought, right view, giving up, of course, reactivity of attachment, aversion, and the passivity of not caring. But it's also, to practice equanimity means 
giving up, dramatizing ordinary human events. Listen to yourself sometime. Listen to those that you're listening to and how the most ordinary of human conditions and events get embellished to just an elaborate, dramatic effect. It's ordinary. It's normal. It's mundane. It's like, why do we need to dramatize? Are we so insecure in our own non-self that, that we need to dramatize something to become someone? When we practice awareness of these qualities of mind and, and what is required of us, what do we need to let go of in order to develop these qualities of mind? Be prepared to be surprised. It's hard enough just to remember these 10 qualities. So get yourself a list. I, I, put, some out, uh, I put a list out here for each one of you to take home as a little reminder and a little quote to uh, support your, your practice. But understand that they're all practices of renunciation. Renunciation, of course, is letting go. At our retreats on Maui, where we, we hold a retreat, we, have, we rent a facility and we have a lot of uh, retreat supplies, cushions, abutans, kitchen supplies, dishes, plates, cups, all, all kinds of stuff. We have it in a storage unit at home. And when we have a retreat, we load it all up into a truck, take it out to the retreat center, set it up, run the retreat. At the end of the retreat, we invite the local Sangha members to come to the retreat center, pack everything up into boxes and, and containers, take it in the truck back home and put it in storage. So at the end of one recent retreat, a bunch of friends had come over and we'd packed it all up, brought it home, put it in the storage unit. And I was looking around at the end of the day to see that everything was put away. And I saw a box of kitchen supplies off to the side. So I went over to the box of kitchen supplies and I picked up one item from it and I held it up and I said to my friend Duke, hey Duke, how would you like a box of wheat-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, chocolate chipless, chocolate chip cookies? This is the renunciation cookie. And he says, uh, he says uh, uh, there are some things in life I can do without. <laughs> the question for us is, what in life can we do without? You know, when we grow up, if you've grown up, <laughs> when we were growing up, when we were younger, we had some toy or sport or friend that was just the center of our life. It was just the reason we lived, the, the source of our joy and happiness, the consumer of our time. And for a period of time, whether it's a week or a month or a year, we just invested so much energy and effort and love into that activity into that thing, into that person, because it was so rewarding, it was so happiness-making, it was so pleasant for us. Where is it now? Where is that toy, or that person, or that behavior, or that sport in your life? It may be in the attic, it may be in the cellar, it may be in the dump, 
but it's no longer in your heart. It is no longer the source of your attachment. Somewhere in the past, you let go. The mind just let go. Renounce this as the vehicle of your happiness. And you may never have noticed it. Letting go and renunciation needn't be a painful doing without essentials. But when we hear the word renunciation, most of us don't think of how joyful that will be. <laughs> renunciation is like, <laughs> keep away, you know, you know, like my previous assumption, if I can get everything I want, then I'll really be happy. And renunciation is, if you can get rid of everything you don't need, you'll be really happy. What is it that we no longer need? I invite you to take a look in the attics of your life and see what you're holding on to, what you have stored there, just in case, you know, for a rainy day, for a bad time. What is it that you're holding on to that you no longer need? And you can tell whether you need it or not, today especially, when you ask yourself, is this essential for the fulfillment of my aspiration? Do I need this behavior, belief, person, thing in order to realize my highest aspiration? We haven't stopped growing. I mean, just because we've reached 20, 30, 40 years old, we haven't stopped growing. We don't stop growing until we stop growing. We can grow, the mind can grow up until the last moment of our life. It can grow in capacity if we let go, if we make room in the mind for something new. But our minds, our hearts are so full of baggage, of stuff, of beliefs and behaviors and obsessions and accoutrements that don't really support the direction in life we now see we would rather go. And this is an invitation to let go. Not out of anger, not out of aversion, not out of even denying yourself, but just out of a recognition, the wise recognition, this is not serving me. But it takes courage. We all have beliefs, behaviors, former friends that are still mingling in our mind and maybe for no beneficial purpose.
What in life can you do without? Quite well, actually, without. Let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. True renunciation, Suzuki Roshi says, is not giving up the things of this world, but in knowing that they go away. for listening to the Dhamma. So there's about 40 minutes, 45 minutes for mindful movement, and then we'll gather again to um, finish the evening practicing together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.